name was C.S. Lewis. I think it's because I thought I was related to him as a kid, which I'm not, by the way. Growing up, my mom used to read me The Chronicles of Narnia when I was about six years old, and I became captivated by the story. But when I was growing older, when I was a teenager and even a young adult, I became more captivated with the story of the man C.S. Lewis himself. You see, C.S. Lewis grew up. He had a good life until his mother died of a disease when he was young. Then his father was working to provide for the family, but he had a pretty dark and gloomy outlook on life. He had questions like, is there a God? What is my purpose in life? Is Jesus real? At the age of 19, he went on and served in World War I. Like many veterans from World War I, he came back with scars and horrors and terrors from the war, which began to even further impact his thinking. He began to exclaim, and in fact, he is uh, quoted by saying, either there was no God behind the universe, or if there is a God, he is not good, but he is indifferent towards good and evil. You can, as you can imagine, this led C.S. Lewis to immerse himself into materialism, into cults, into different religions and ideologies, until he claimed himself to be an atheist. And he sets out at one point in his life as a young man to try to prove that God does not exist, to try to prove that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God. But you know what? The more he tried and the more he studied and the more he thought, he finally came to the conclusion that there is a God. The more he researched, his conclusions led him to believe that there has to be a God. And even though he did not become a Christian necessarily at that moment in his life, he had to believe that there was a God who existed. He says that he submitted himself to the belief of God in 1929, but that he did not submit himself to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ until 1931. C.S. Lewis's testimony this morning illustrates the fact that every single one of us have to answer the question, who is God? Who is Jesus? How can I have a relationship with God? And how does that affect my life? And I would submit to you this morning that it's not just every person in this room, but it's every person in our world today. We have Easter on the calendar, and I'll be honest, I don't know quite how that works for Easter, how it lands on the Sunday it does every year. But when I get my calendar every year, I see where Easter is. And every time I look at it, I think there is a question that whether you're a Christian, an atheist, you believe some other kind of religion, you have to wrestle with this question of who is Jesus. And maybe you're here this morning and you've been in church your whole life. You've listened to the Bible. You've been around good Christian people. But you've never truly asked yourself that question. Who is Jesus? What do I do with Jesus? Maybe you're here this morning and you've tried to avoid Jesus for as long as you can. You don't want any relationship with him. You don't want anything to do with Jesus. But that does not stop you from having to ask yourself the question, who is Jesus? Maybe you're like C.S. Lewis and you're saying, in my heart, I'm going to try to prove that he is not Lord, that he was just a good person, but that he is not God. Friends, this morning, I want us to see from God's word, who is God who is Jesus and how we can have a relationship with him. If you've been part of our church family, we've been walking through verse by verse the book of Acts. 
Acts is such a rich book that details the history of the early church. And as I was preaching through these passages of Acts, one thing that you just are met with immediately is not only who Jesus is, but what is the gospel? How can you have a relationship with God? And in almost every passage, we're just walking through the gospel, what Christ did for sin. And we're seeing thousands of people saved in this early church movement. And so as I thought about it, I thought, I want to look at these different passages and acts to help us answer these foundational questions to life. Some people make the mistake of looking at the book of Acts and thinking it's not a book about Jesus. It's just a book about the early church. Maybe it's a book about the Holy Spirit. And I would submit to you this morning that Acts tells us the story of Jesus. In fact, Acts is so important because after Jesus ascends in Acts chapter 1, we see what do these people do with Jesus? What do the disciples do with him that knew Jesus? What would the Jews do with Jesus who rejected him and put him on the cross? What would the Gentiles do with Jesus who were separated from the Jews? And so the question I want all of us to answer this morning is this. What does Acts tell us about the gospel? What does Acts have to contribute to the good news of who Jesus is? And in doing that, we're going to look at four different questions. First of all, we're going to look at who is God? Who is God? First thing I want us to see in Acts is that there is a God. He is talked about throughout this book that we've been looking at together as a church family. And it's assumed throughout the entire book. I want us to notice a couple things about God. First of all, we see he is a creator. He is a creator. Now, I'm going to have the verses on the screen so you don't have to flip around your Bible to get to all these. They'll all be on the screen. You've also, I know my brother is handing out a handout as well. There's some in the back. We first see that God is a creator. No other being can create. Now, sometimes we like to say that we created something. We're really just making something out of what God has created for us. Look at some of these passages with me. First of all, Acts 14, 15. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. If you're here this morning, if you looked at the beautiful sunset like Tim was talking about, if you just take on this breathtaking creation of God, you can see that there is a God. Now, some people don't like to say that there's a God. They want to say that the earth was created by chance. But I don't see how you can look at this beautiful world and think and come to any other conclusion other than there is a God who made the heavens and the earth. And this is in the book of Acts. Look at Acts 17, verses 23 through 26. It says, This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not, make temple, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind breath and life and everything. There is a God and he creates. And by the way, he created us. What does that mean? We have a beginning. We all started at some point in time. We are not infinite, but we're finite creatures created by an infinite God. God is a creator. Secondly, we see that God is three in one. There is one God and three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Does Acts show us this? I believe it does. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. 
It says, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, speaking to Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. How do we see the Trinity there? We see them talking to Jesus, the Lord. We see them talking about the Father who has this plan, and the Spirit who would give them power. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our God is three, and our God is one. Now, how does that work? We're going to have to ask God when we get there, because it's so complex, the doctrine of the Trinity. He's not only a creator, he's not only three in one, but we see that God is sovereign. This is such a key theme throughout the book of Acts, but one passage that tells us this is Acts 4, verses 24 through 26. As the early church is being persecuted in Acts 4, this is what they say. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. God is sovereign. He's sovereign over every circumstance of our life. Sometimes we like to think maybe God made a mistake. Maybe he wasn't paying attention when this happened in my life. God doesn't take anything by chance. He doesn't say, oops. He doesn't forget about something. Nothing catches God off guard. God is sovereign. Amen? God is sovereign. And many times people don't want to believe that there is a God because they, want, they don't want to realize that there is a higher authority than them. Do you realize this morning that there is a God and it is not you? You are not sitting on the throne of your heart The world does not revolve around you, but there is a God who deserves our glory. And by the way, this God is everywhere. Number four, we see that he is omnipresent. What does that mean? It's a big word. That means that God is everywhere. It doesn't mean that everything is a God. It doesn't mean the sun's a God or the chair's a God or the piano's a God, but it means that God is all present. We see in Acts 7, 48 through 50, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? God is everywhere. You cannot escape from the presence of God. He's not only everywhere, but he's glorious. He's glorious. See this in Acts 7, 2. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. What is God's glory? It's so hard to define and to describe. Some would say it's his brightness. It was the worship and the radiance that he deserves. It's interesting that God is glorious, but yet we can glorify God and give glory to God. But it sets him apart. It defines him even from us. And lastly, what I want us to see about God this morning is that he knows our hearts. God knows your heart. It says in Acts 15, 8, And God, who knows the heart, who bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. 
Have you ever kept something from someone, thought that no one else knew about that, thought that it's just your secret? One of the things that's been interesting about being engaged and getting ready to be married soon is that Alicia can figure stuff out about me without asking me about it. She'll just say, yeah, you tend to do this when, you know, this happens. And I say, How did, I didn't tell you that. How did you know that? She just watches me and she's been around me enough to realize that even if you're going to keep a secret from anyone, your friends, your family, your fiance, your spouse, your children, God knows your heart. God can see into the depths of your heart. He can see your desires, your thoughts, those days when you have that thought about that person that you might not want others to think, that thought that you have, maybe those bad attitudes that you have, but you hide them from others. God knows your heart. And why is that? Because God created your heart. Nothing is hidden from him. Friends, this is who God is. God created everything. He is everywhere. He is glorious. He is so much more than even what we've said. He's loving. He's holy. He's just. But these are a few of the attributes of God that are brought out in the book of Acts. The author of Acts paints a beautiful picture of who the God of the Bible is. And he sets, therefore, the message of Acts. Everyone in this room this morning, everyone in this world needs to know that there is a God. But many people believe that there is a God, right? Many people even believe in the God of the Bible. But does that make them a Christian? The second question we want to ask ourselves this morning is, who is man? Who are we? You might say, well, I know who I am. Well, maybe. But the Bible tells us things about ourselves as well. So we want to answer two questions. I'm kind of combining them into one. If you go to this church, you know, sometimes I like to combine questions, like multiple questions into one to make it seem like one, but I'm really asking two or three or four or seven, you know. Who is God and, or who is man and what is sin? We're going to see three different features about man in the book of Acts. First of all, man is created by God. You didn't come from a big bang. You didn't just come to being on your own. You were created by God, and this should be obvious to us. Look at Acts 17, verses 23 through 26. We looked at this passage earlier. Paul's talking to the citizens of Athens who had all these gods for everything, right? You had Zeus, the Greek god of lightning. You had Hades, the god of the underworld. You had all these different gods of wisdom and power. But look at what he says. He says, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, though he is needed, though he needed anything, since he gives himself, he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. All these false religions would literally feed their gods, do things for their gods. And they're saying, God does not need to be fed by you, he doesn't need to be protected by you. But he's the one who made heaven and earth. Man is created in the image of God. And I won't get off too much on this, but that gives every person life. Do you realize this morning, whether you're saved, unsaved, a man, a woman, a different ethnicity, whatever your background is, you are made in the image of God. And that's why life has value. That's why it's wrong to kill a human life. That's why every man, woman, and child, even before conception, or even before birth, even at conception, is made in the image of God. And therefore they have 
value, and worth. Man is created by God. Secondly, we see, though, that man has rejected God because of sin. Because of sin. Look with me at Acts 7. First of all, in verse 39, it says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in our hearts they turn to Egypt. Talking about the Jews, God saved them from Egypt. He saved them from slavery, but they said, We don't want to obey God. We want to go our own way. We want to do our own thing. So they reject God in their hearts. You might say, well, that's really bad. Well, guess what? All of us have rejected God. God has given us a way to go. He's told us what to do. And we've said, I don't want to do that. I want to go the other way. I want to take another path. Later on in Acts 7, verses 41 and 42, it talks about Israel. And look what else they did. It says, and they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the hosts of heaven. These Jewish people knew who God was. He had appeared to Moses in a burning bush. He had appeared in a pillar of cloud and led them to where they're going. Talking about a GPS. I mean, they had a literal pillar of dust in the sky that they followed to see where they're supposed to go. And what did they say? He's not good enough for us. We're going to make a God in our own image. And once again, that's what all of us do because of sin. Maybe you've been a really good person in your life. Maybe you know you struggle with sin. Whatever the case may be, your heart is tainted by sin. Every person in this room, every person in the world deals with sin. They have a sin problem in their hearts. While I'm not trying to beat us up or make us feel worse than necessarily we need to, Do you understand that the problem is not outside of yourself, but the problem is in your heart? As a pastor in this town, I go to different meetings for how to help with drug addictions and different homeless shelters and things like that. And I love the different works and ministries that these places do. But sometimes they get away from the point. They get away from the problem. They say the problem is this. The problem is the government. The problem is the Democrats. The problem is the Republicans. The problem is all these other religions out there. No, the problem is that God made man in the image of God and man sinned. And man turned away from God and therefore his heart is corrupt. You want to know why the world is so messed up and so crooked and wicked? That is the problem. The problem is sin. The problem is that God has told us what we should do and we've said no. If you're in this church, you know my dog Mac and that I had quite the time trying to train my dog Mac. You know, I lived with a pastor who had a um, lab that was just super well trained. I mean, he could open doors and close them. So I thought when I got a dog, I'm going to teach Mac how to be really well trained. And you know what I learned about dogs? They don't want to behave, especially when they're puppies. And it's funny, I'd give Mac a treat. I'd tell him exactly what I wanted him to do. And he would say, no, I don't want to do that. And he'd go to his own thing. And I remember my best friend Jake was with me when I first got him. And I would just be pleading with Mac. I'm like, I just want you to do, I just want you to sit. I just want you to do this. And Jake said, you know what the problem is? He doesn't know English. He said, if your dog knew English, he'd get this training thing down way better. In the same way that my dog does exactly what I tell him not to do. We have disobeyed God. And friends, that is the problem. 
we see that we've sinned, that we've disobeyed God. I want us to finally see that sin comes from the heart. Some people like to talk about their sin, but they talk about it like someone else gave it to them. Like, yeah, I know I'm a sinner, but if my parents hadn't made me a sinner, you know, or if this person hadn't caused me to sin, no sin comes from your heart. Look at Acts 5. Acts 5, verses 3 and 4. Peter is rebuking Ananias and Sapphira, and he says this. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself proceeds of the land? When it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. This is back in Acts 5. I think Ananias and Sapphira are Christians. I really do. But in the early church, and we've talked about this as a church family through our study in Acts, they would give generous gifts to one another. They would sell land and property, and they would give to those in the church in need. And so Ananias and Sapphira saw that people were getting a lot of praise and a lot of recognition for this, and they said, we want to do that too. But you know what they did? They sold their land, and they said they sold it for this much, but they actually sold it for way more than that, but they kept back some of that extra for themselves and did not give it to God. You might say, what's the big deal? They lied about it. They lied about it. And they didn't just lie, but they wanted the glory for themselves. And it illustrates something, I think, about the human heart. And that is that all sin comes from our hearts. All sin starts from inside of us. You might say, well, I said that, but I I was just kidding. I didn't mean to say that. Well, you said it. I didn't mean to do that. I just struggle in this way. And that may be true. But sin comes from the heart. Do you recognize in your own heart this morning, you have a heart that is corrupted by sin. My brother Quinn talked about this in the sunrise service message this morning. And I think it illustrates something that whether you're 14, 26, 45, 85, 99, you can understand the gospel. You can understand that man's problem isn't the government, isn't the internet, isn't Republicans or Democrats. It is sin. It's that sin separates us from God. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, human history is the long terrible story of man trying to find something other than God to make him happy. Acts not only tells us about who God is, who we are, and what is sin, but Acts also tells us about Jesus. I think Jesus is the star of the book of Acts. I think Jesus is what the book of Acts is all about. And you say, well, he ascends to heaven in chapter one. Yes, but they go and spread the gospel of Jesus When someone is healed, they're healed in the name of Jesus. When someone is martyred for their faith, they're martyred for Jesus. Let's look together and see that Jesus is the center of the book of Acts. We first see this, I think, in that passage that Tim read for us, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. That first book he's talking about, I believe, is the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then he would later on go right on to write the book of Acts. So it's kind of a two-part series. He says, Until the day he was taken up, and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit 
to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them, suffering by many proofs, appearing to them and speaking about the kingdom of God. Even from Acts 1, we see that Acts is a book about Jesus. It's a book that puts Jesus on display. Why do I think that? Well, I think the whole Bible shows us who Jesus is. Now, I don't mean that Jesus is in every story necessarily, or that he's in every word, but I think the Bible points us to Jesus and who he is. What does the Bible say about Jesus? What does Acts say about Jesus? First of all, it tells us that Jesus is both God and man. Look at Acts 2, verse 22. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested you by God with mighty works, is in your midst. Jesus was a man. He looked like a human. Sometimes we have this picture of Jesus that he's like a superhero. He's like flying around in a Superman cape or something. No, you wouldn't be able to pick him out of a crowd. Jesus was a real person. He lived a real human life. But notice what Peter goes on to say in verse 36 of Acts 2. He says, let all the house of Israel know that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Jesus is a man, but he's also God. 100% God, 100% man. He's able to do both because he is God, but he took on human flesh. And Acts shows us this, not just here, but in other places as well. What else does Acts tell us about Jesus? tells us that he suffered and died for sin. The crucifixion of Christ. What my dad sang about with the lamb who is on the cross. The songs that we sang about. Come behold the wondrous mystery. What is the mystery? That Christ suffered and died for sins. It was finished upon that cross. You know what that means? That means that you and I don't have to pay for our own sins. But it was finished in the work of Jesus Let's look at these passages, Acts 4.27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. The world put Jesus to death. Some people make the mistake of saying the Jews put him to death, which they were part of it, yes. But the Gentiles put him to death too. The Jews accused him, but the Romans killed him. The world Put Christ on the cross. And in putting him on the cross, Christ suffered and died for the whole world. So that the whole world can know him. In Acts 8.32, Philip is talking to the Ethiopian eunuch. And this is what the eunuch is reading. Look at what it says. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opens not his mouth. It's quoted from the book of Isaiah. Christ is depicted as a lamb. Like the song my dad sang. A lamb who was brought. We know the Jews. They would bring lambs to the temple to kill them. To sacrifice them for sin. So that they could be cleansed from their sin. But do you know what? There was not a lamb. There was not one drop of blood from a lamb that could take away our sins. But what did it do? It looked forward to the promise of Christ. Christ is the true lamb, the true sacrifice for sin. We not only see that Christ suffered and died for sin, we also see that Jesus rose again from the dead 
And this is what we celebrate this morning. Amen. This is the hope of Easter Sunday. It is the resurrection of Christ. That song that we sang earlier, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. There's a part that Linda always shouts on. And I always just kind of look at better while I'm playing guitar. And I try not to mess up on the chords. But I always know that when we get to the part where it says, Praise the Lord, He is alive. She's going to just shout. And it's such a wonderful thing for our church family to sing the resurrection of Jesus Christ together. The line before that says, No grave could restrain him. He could not stay dead, but Christ is risen. Amen? He is risen from the dead. Look at these passages with me. Acts 4.10 Let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. By him this man is standing before you as well. God raised him from the dead. Look at Acts 10. We are all witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him appear. Acts 2, 23 through 24. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death, for it was not possible for him to be held by it. Christ could not stay dead, but he is risen from the dead. Amen? This is why we celebrate Easter. This is why we sing all those songs. I know I picked a lot of songs for today, but if there, if there was ever a Sunday where we're going to sing a lot, it is Easter Sunday. Do you know why? Because we have something to sing about. We have the hope of the resurrection. We know that Jesus is alive. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean that Jesus is alive? Why is that so important for us? Christ paid for sin on the cross. Yes, it was finished on the cross. There was nothing more he had to do. But the resurrection is what gives us hope. It shows us that the Father accepted the sacrifice of the Son. It shows us that Jesus is who he says he is fully God and fully man. It shows us that Jesus would do what he said he was going to do. He said over and over again, I'm going to go, suffer, die on the cross. I'm going to be buried. Then three days later, I'm going to rise again. And what did the disciples do? Well, we don't know if he's going to be risen again. But Jesus is risen as he said he would. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, this is the hope of the Christian faith. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to guess. We can be confident in the resurrection. But why is the resurrection so important? Why is the gospel so important? Why is Christ's suffering so important? Because it shows us the story of Jesus and how he offers us eternal life. Alistair Begg, one of my favorite pastors to listen to, says the unity of the Bible is found in the fact that the story of salvation is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gives us salvation, and he offers to everyone in this room, in this town, and in this world salvation through him. So finally, I want us to see how can man have a relationship with God? How can we have a relationship with God? First of all, believe 
in Christ. Acts 16.31, the Philippian jailer, it says, I brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, and your household. Do you believe that Jesus is who he said he is? That he's done what he says he has done? That he offers you eternal life? Do you believe that there is a God? Do you believe that he created the world? Do you believe that Jesus has done what he says he's done and that he offers us eternal life? We believe in Christ and then we repent from our sins. But does that mean you're going to be perfect? No. Does that mean you won't struggle with sin? No. But it is a turning. It is a conversion. You're turning from sin at that point to Christ. And by the way, we see it all throughout Acts. Look at Acts 2. Verse 38, and Peter said to them, what? Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 3.19, repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Christ appointed for your sins. Acts eleven eighteen, when they heard these things, they fell silent and glorified God, saying, the Gent- "Then to the Gentiles also, because God has granted what repentance that leads to life. What is repentance? It's turning the other way. It's turning from your sin towards Christ. Have you ever been driving somewhere and realized I need to go the other way? I'm going the wrong way right now. I do that way more often than I would admit." Where I just am going somewhere, even if I have a GPS, I look and I think, I'm not going the right way. My little car on my GPS is going the wrong way from the, and my ETA starts going up further and further. And Alicia asks me, she says, why don't you ever get anywhere on time? Well, because half the time I go the wrong way than what the GPS is telling me to go. And so what do you have to do? You have to do a legal U-turn or just go somewhere and turn around, you know, maybe you can do it that way. You turn from where you're going where you need to go. That's what repentance is. You're stuck in your sin. You're focused on yourself. You can turn around. You turn from sin to Christ. How do we do that? We confess our sins to God. Now, we have this idea of confession that's very negative. We think it's like confessing to a crime or something, and that's true. The word confession actually means to say the same thing of. That's why we confess doctrine. We as a church have a doctrinal statement. We confess that. We say the same thing about it. So how does confession work with sin? It means we agree with God about our sin. God says that we're sinful, that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, that we need Christ to save us. And what do we say? Yes, I agree. I know. I need to change. We agree with God about our sin. But why don't people do this? Why don't people confess? It's because you have to admit that you're sinful, that you can't save yourself. And so millions of people today will answer the question wrongly. They will be asked, who is Jesus? They'll be asked who God is. They'll be asked about themselves. What do they do with their sin? You know what they'll say? I don't need that. I'm just fine on my own. 
I'm going to get to heaven and God and I, we're just going to make it even. I've done enough good to outweigh my bad. I don't need Christ's salvation. I don't need to repent of sin. That's not true. God offers a way of eternal life. We have to agree with God about our sin and our need for a savior. I say this often here. Everyone as a kid, they want to be Superman. They want to be Batman. Or maybe the, maybe even they want to be the villain. Although those kids I try not to hang around with. But no one wants to admit that they need saving. No one wants to be the person who needs saved. But God has saved us from sin. C.S. Lewis says, The Christian does not think that God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, I know I'm bad. I know I've messed up. I know I'm sinful. Why would God want me? Well, God doesn't save us because of anything we've done, but he saves us because he loves us. He loved us enough to send his son to die for us on the cross. That is the mystery that we sang about. That is the mystery of what Christ has done for us. And it leads to eternal life. It leads to new life even here on earth. It is something that will change the way you live. But not everyone answers this question correctly. I want to go to one more passage. Turn to Acts 26. The last several chapters of Acts we've actually not gotten to as a church family, so I'm not going to try to spoil too much because we'll get there in the next couple months. But Acts 26, verses 28 through 29, Paul is giving his testimony. And when he gives his testimony, he has a purpose. Number one, he's trying not to be thrown in jail, but he would be. Number two, he wants as many people to hear the gospel and repent as possible. So in Acts 26, he goes and he presents the gospel. He presents his conversion, his testimony to King Agrippa. And notice what King Agrippa says. It says, And King Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? That translation, I don't think, necessarily explains it the best. Some others say, You've almost persuaded me to be a Christian. But he's just not quite there. And there are many, there are many who will hear the gospel. And they'll say, yeah, I think there's a God. And yeah, maybe Jesus is the son of God, but I'm just not quite there yet. You've just not convinced me enough. And those, I think, are the saddest people of all. They're just right there on the edge. I don't know what happened to King Agrippa. Maybe he did come to a saving knowledge of Christ later. But we're not told that in the book of Acts. But friends, if you're here this morning and you're just right there, there's good news for you. That doesn't have to be the end of your story. You can know Jesus as your Savior. You can know that you'll spend eternity with him. You can know that there is a God who loves you, who created you, who wants to have a relationship with you. You can know that Christ came and suffered and died for your sins. Let's answer a couple just questions at the end that I have for us. First of all, do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with him? If you do, amen. We praise Jesus today as Christians. We celebrate what he's done 
for us. But if you don't know Jesus, will you study him? Will you look at what he's done for you on the cross? Will you see that he has delivered you from sin? One of the interesting things about C.S. Lewis's conversion story was that he ended up doing a study with a couple of his friends, one of whom was J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings. They were good friends. And a couple other men. And they were trying to share with C.S. Lewis the gospel, trying to help him convert to be a Christian. And he went on this train ride. And when he left, he says, when we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ was the son of God. But they're going to a zoo of all places. And after talking after thinking about it and God working on his heart, he said, when we arrived, I'd become a Christian. He came to a saving knowledge of Christ. And this is what he says. It was more like when a man after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. For so long, we're dead in sin. We don't realize that we're dead, but we are. And then finally, what does Ephesians say? Christ has made us alive. He gives to us new life. So maybe, friends, maybe you're here this morning and you realize that your life is dead. That you're stuck in the same old sin patterns. That you need Christ's forgiveness of sins. He offers you new and everlasting life if you'll trust in him. And that's what the gospel according to Acts is all about. Is how we can have new life in Christ. If you are a Christian, praise God. We celebrate and we sing about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, today. So I'm going to pray, and we'll sing one more song as we close this morning. Father, we thank you for what your Son, Jesus Christ, has done for us for sin. We know that it's only because of him that we can be saved, that we can have a relationship with him. I pray for those this morning who may be struggling, who may be far away from God, who may be right on the edge, or who may know that they still need salvation. God, would you open their hearts? Would you work in them to accept the gospel. And God, be with the rest of us. Help us to be encouraged, to be convicted, to be warned, but to also celebrate what Christ has done for us. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.